Uh, well, happy Holy Week. Glad to see you all. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. Yay! Um, do you guys know what you're wearing next week? Because I've been working on it for months. So Eric and I are trying to coordinate, but it turns out he doesn't want to wear a dress. So it's been, it's been challenging. Uh, good morning. My name is Megan Dobraz. I'm the pastor of college and career. And probably like you, I have missed Richard a lot. Being gone for a month is a little bit too long for our relationship. Uh, so he flies back today, which is very exciting. will be with us uh, for both Good Friday and Easter. So mark your calendar. Uh, we are continuing in our series on uh, Psalm 23. And today we're specifically looking at verse 5. And then it'll be... Surprise, verse 6 next week finishes Easter. Uh, so as I've been doing some reading and prepping for today, many commentators and authors start with this caveat about Psalm 23, probably best summarized by a theologian that I really respect, Walter Brueggemann. And he says, in regards to Psalm 23, it's almost pretentious to comment on it. Thank you. He goes on to say, Psalm 23 is such a simple statement that it can bear its own witness without comment. Cool. So I wasted a week of my life, uh, but thank you, Walter. We are going to, in fact, read Psalm 1, uh, 1 to 5. I'll read it for you. You can read silently. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So that's verse 5, which we'll, we'll read and focus on today. In many ways, Brueggemann is right. We all have some sort of interaction or some sort of pivotal moment in our life where Psalm 23 has had a, a part in it. My senior year of college, uh, which I loved college, I was devastated to leave so much so uh, that I had this major anxiety of what I was going to do after college. It was so strong that I would crawl into my closet, shut the door, and like sitting crouched on all my shoes, just bawl my eyes out because I was so anxious about what would happen. It wasn't that I didn't have a job lined up for right after college. I had that, check. Uh, but the overwhelm of the knowledge that I had no idea what was ahead of me was really anxiety producing. I knew things were going to change, but I didn't know how they were going to change. Would I stay friends with the people who had been pivotal in my life and had really helped to define? who I was as an adult? What if I wasn't good at life outside of the structure of college? Like, how do you get an A at being an adult? I wasn't quite certain. So this uh, anxiety was, was crippling to me. I was so anxious. What's funny is that initially a friend sensing my distress, which they really did sense it because I would not talk about this to anybody because I was in college and I was a leader, and so I thought you weren't supposed to tell anybody when you had problems because you were a leader. I've since learned that that's not true. Uh, but I was at this Good Friday service that we had on campus, and a friend who was sensing my distress came up and said, you know, I, I just, like, want to tell you Psalm 23. 
just have this and like reads it to me. And so initially I was super annoyed, like could not believe that they would tell me this. It felt trite in the midst of my pain, uh, in the midst of the darkness, the loneliness, the fear and anxiety. It honestly felt dismissive that uh, they didn't know what I was going through at all. And it was, like, it was as if they came up and said, you look sad, here's a, a peppy psalm for you. Like pull it together. <laughs> So I all but like stormed out of the classroom, which for me, who I was at that space in my life really looked like me saying, oh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, let's chat later and walk out. And on the inside, I'm like raging, right? Uh, so I go to my car and cry and just really let the air have it. Uh, so I, I really did uh, cry, I raged for a while, and I began thinking about the psalm itself initially to prove my point of rage. So how can you tell me that I lack nothing? How can you tell me that there's abundance? I can't believe this. But as I really raged longer and longer, I, I began to feel comforted by this. Like, well, in fact, maybe I'm not alone. Maybe my life won't end with this transition. Maybe there is hope and comfort, and maybe God is in the midst of this with me, that I'm not doing it alone, and it's just that transitions are hard. It took me about nine months to go back to that friend and tell them the whole story, but you know. So today we're specifically looking at this verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. We all have some sort of experience with this. Up to this point of the psalm, David has used this metaphor of God as a shepherd, using this really familiar imagery that has resonated with all of humankind up until the point of the Industrial, Resolu Revo uh, industrial Revolution. So now we have to spend seven weeks talking about sheep and shepherds because we have no idea what a sheep needs or what a shepherd honestly looks like. One of you might be a shepherd and I wouldn't even know. Uh, but, we, but forever, uh, David used this example that was very familiar to people. So when we get to verse five, David adds this element, not only is God still a shepherd, but he's now a host. This element will be carried into verse six as well. And there are other notable shifts that take place in this portion of the psalm. So the end of verse four and then all of verse five refer to God in the first person. So up until this point, verse one to like mid four, uh, David is talking about God. And then the end of four in verse five, he's talking to God, so it's a prayer. And then verse six, he goes back to talking about God. So we have this real small portion where he's talking to God in a prayer. And this change of voice to a prayer is not the way we normally think about it of like, hey, could you get involved here or have some thoughts or requests? But rather, David is saying it in the form of a statement. So he's telling God that he's going to provide in these ways. It's a prayer of confidence that's undeniable that the Lord is hospitable, as we'll see in verse six. David is clear that God is his destination. And as we recall the context of this psalm, describing a need for rest, for safety, for clarity of decision-making, that there's challenges and that there's a reality of scary things that feel fearful. David has his eyes set on finding God in this time. He's not speaking with self-confidence or false confidence, but with God confidence. David trusts God well enough to confidently say these things. A thesis of Psalm 23 would be that there's evil in the world, but evil is not to be feared. Another way to say that is it's okay to be terrified of something on the one hand or 
consistently mildly anxious on the other. Our lives are lived in the company of both the shepherd and the shadow, that they can live together. Fear and evil can exist in the same time because God is there right in the midst. So what does happen after graduation? Well, what if I never get married? Well, what if I do get married and then I stay married even though it's really hard? What if I lose my job? What if I lose a loved one? What if my body never fully recovers from this illness or injury? How am I gonna fix my relationship with so-and-so? What if so-and-so wants to fix that relationship with me and I don't wanna fix it? What if I miss something that everybody knows but me? It's not hard to like start feeling anxious, right? Uh, Our heartbeat gets a little bit faster. You can think of some specifics. It's easy to drum up our fears. And in this portion of the psalm, we see why evil challenges and tough situations don't have to be feared. And instead, who the Lord is in the midst of them. We also see the humanity of David and will wonder about what to do with that for a little portion of our time. So first, we see why the evil challenges and tough situations should not be feared, instead who God is in the midst. So at the very end of verse four, that 4C, David is doing that prayer telling thing uh, to God, and and he's asking God to help with the fear of being a, a guide. He needs God to be present. He's asking God to be present. Using the imagery of the rod and the staff, Lord, guide me, use your tools, the familiar ones, rod and staff, to keep me going in the right direction. So essentially he's saying, help me make good decisions. We as Christians, it's not really uncommon for us to engage God at the beginning of things and at the end of things. The beginning of a new venture, a new academic year, a new political cycle, a business enterprise, or a trip, we include God in a lot of those prayers, acknowledging that he's part of them, asking him if we should really do this, if we shouldn't do this, Uh, we want his blessing in them, and then we're pretty good at acknowledging God at the end of things, the end of a career, the end of a life, the end of an academic achievement, anniversaries, birthdays, God gets shout outs there for sure. But verse four is reminding us that we need God the whole time. We need him to preserve us, to accompany us, and to guide us with grace and mercy, not just to see God as the father of things at the beginning and the judge of them at the end, but rather as our shepherd and host throughout the whole process, our entire lives. So verse four reminds us we need God for the whole thing. The end of verse four does. And then verse five tells us of these three tangible provisions that change the way we understand and deal with fear. The provision of the table, provision of the oil, and provision of the cup. We're mostly honestly gonna talk about the table because that's what I'm most interested in. Uh, Thought about it a lot this week and just kept, that portion just kept getting bigger and bigger and I was like, these are smart people. If they wanna talk about the cup or oil, they'll be fine to do that on their own. Uh, Or we can chat after, whatever you want. You're very smart people. So first, the provision of the table says, you prepare a table before me. The table is this image of a place of thoughtful comfort, of rest, a place that draws us together. I'm not seeing any of the particular people I was thinking of, but there are some women here who are amazing at pulling a table together. Dan, Travis, Jane Sommerfeld, Alita Franks, all of them just have this gift at doing it. They can make a table. It's this thoughtfulness of the space that says, I've been waiting for you. I've prepared this for you. They somehow find at a store that sells them, I'm sure, these like seasonal decorations that just have to do with spring or there's probably a Palm Sunday 
decoration somewhere. But they, they find these seasonal things, they put them on the table, the, like all of the plates are there, all of the silverware, multiple glasses, it's really quite beautiful. Your name is at a chair that is very comfortable as if to say, this space is for you. I've been waiting for you. I've prepped for you. I've thought about you. At the table, not only does food nourish our bodies, but the conversation and the company that goes on around the table while sitting there is often indescribable. After those initial catching up conversations, there's space at the table to have that second conversation or that third conversation, to tell the story, to ask a question, to go on conversational tangents, and to laugh in such a way that though you're trying to catch your breath and wiping away tears, you know that you're not gonna be able to retell this story with like as much joy as is right there in that moment. It's gonna be one of those you had to be there moments, but it doesn't matter because you're there right now, because someone prepared a space for you. These beautiful moments. According to Eugene Peterson in the Palestinian desert, this idea of table as a place of comfort and rest extends to everyone. So it's not just who you invite over to your home, but every wanderer in the desert, every whatever their character or their past was, was received in the shepherd's tent, in what uh, in Arabic is translated to be the guest of God. So anyone who approaches the shepherd's tent with the custom is that of open hospitality. So you're invited in, you're given food, and the shepherd takes responsibility of of your safety. As long as you're with them, they're responsible for your safety. Side note, apparently this still is the custom in Bedouin culture, so if you happen to get lost in the middle of a desert, look for a Bedouin. Pro tip, I wouldn't have known that. Uh, In Psalm 23, God has prepared a table for those on their journey. It's this beautiful thing, right? It's so attractive. You really want to go there. In the, in the words of, of Liz Lemon, I want to go to there, right? Like, it sounds so attractive. In the midst of walking with hard things, there's this oasis as a place of rest. And I think most of us want both the actual table, who doesn't want good food, with a nice comfortable chair, where we can sit long and we can share our stories. And we also want this metaphorical table where we can feel a place of safety, of belonging, that we're anchored in something. I live by myself and often think, how long will my dead body be there before someone finds me? Like, does anybody ever think that? Like, I actually wonder. Uh, It's just a challenge, but... But we want these, these things, like we want both this medical, metaphorical table and the actual table. For me, the metaphorical table, this sense of safety and belonging gets hung up with my impatience about the actual table. That I often do not want to sit long and chat in depth. Uh, I'm a true Seattleite, so I love efficiency, for sure. Like I, on Sunday, I cook all the food for, for the whole week. It's just in, you just pick up the bin, eat it, do the dishes, uh, and <laughs> I, I, it's just how I am. Like, don't call me Friday at six o'clock. Call me at 7 a.m. in the morning when I'm on my way to work because then I can chat, t- uh, chat. So it's a growth area for me, for sure. And thankfully, God has placed this very thoughtful, very kind, talkative person who all, also operates at an entirely slower pace than I am. Like, her brain is not slower than me, but everything else is slower about her. I'm not joking. It's unbelievable, really. Uh, Being friends with her requires slowing things down. 
quite significantly. We've been friends long enough that she's gracious when I'm like power walking to the car or power walking to the movie theater or whatever. She's just like, go on, I'll see you there. Uh, and I do go on, I don't even wait for her at all. Um, and I'll tell her like, I'm gonna pick you up and if you're not there, find your own ride, like Uber some, somewhere. So, uh, but she also speaks up when I'm having a hard time slowing down and, and really listening to her and really engaging with her. So God has given all of us these opportunities and these people in our lives to, to connect with this metaphorical table and to connect with this actual table. David is saying with confidence that the Lord provides a table, a place of refuge, belonging, and safety, which is bigger than anything that we fear. Before we look at the provision of oil, we want to take a quick sidebar. Uh, what started out as an aside continued to stick with me all week and really bug me, so I thought, let's just chat about all of this. We get to see this brief look at David's humanity uh, and, and how in the midst of the confidence of the provision of God at the table, he has this little freak out in this phrase, in the presence of my enemies. So what do we do with that? What's notable is that this lavish table that he knows God provides isn't just about the provision of food and community, but David is also saying that the table must be set up in the presence of his enemies. And this is not because he wants to invite them in. It's actually quite the opposite. While his enemies have to look on is essentially the idea. So I'm here having this big feast I've been thought of, I've been prepared for, and you can take a look at this and just watch it. You can, uh, uh, it's right under their nose, they can look at it, but they're not invited. The table is not for them, is what David's trying to say. C.S. Lewis asks, how can we not blatantly laugh or at least smile at the humanity of David? This psalm has just been talking about lying down in green pastures, waters of comfort, and having this sure confidence in the valley of the shadow. And now that there's this sense that David's present good fortune and prosperity is not complete unless those who used to judge, despise, make his life a little bit harder for him are watching this feast and hating it because they're not invited. This, I mean, you can see why this bugged me all week. There's this pettiness to it. There's a vulgarity of it that's hard to know what to do with because this is scripture, right? Like, what do I do when scripture says something like this? Uh, and it's not just here in Psalm 23. Psalm 143 has the poet like straining to be like, Lord, understand me. Life is so hard. These people are afflicting me. Help me, help me, help me. And then at the very end, verse 12, he says, uh, because you, God, are so good, kill my enemies. Which you're like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Like, you were just talking about how hard it is, and now you're saying, as if the Lord hasn't thought of it, here's a simple solution, kill them. Uh, this is our beloved Psalm 23, and we could handle that, one way that we could handle this is to just leave it alone. Like, just ignore it and pretend that somehow it's not a big deal that David is actively praying for his enemies to suffer? So, or do we make an argument explaining it away by saying it's in the Bible, so it must be good and pious and everything always works out in the Bible, right? So it'll be fine. This is why I was bugged all week because those don't feel like really good options to me. Like neither of them seemed okay. It still remains true that God is the provider of our needs and that we don't have to live in chronic fear when we walk with him. But in the midst of this great poem, we have to take this pit stop and examine what's going on here because we have two facts. 
One is, is that there's a level of hatred and undisguised gloating that we're hearing from David. And two is that we know Christ, so we can't really overlook it or condone it. So what do we do with it? David is honest and with perfect freedom, without self-consciousness or disguise, expressing his resentment. Without shame, he expresses his resentment by putting a curse on his enemies. I don't know about you, but this makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I'd like to chalk it up to poetry, like it's a psalm, it's just poetry. Yes, it is a psalm, but David really did kill large groups of people. First uh, Samuel 18:27, he killed 100 Philistines and brought their foreskins back. So you can see why you're like, what do I do with this? Uh, that's a little brutal. What's even more concerning to me is that though we live in a milder age where we don't have to fight for our life, certainly uh, not often, uh, we, uh, we do still do this sort of cursing. So though we don't have to fight to live every single day, physically uh, have to kill to live, we do still do this sort of cursing. We see it in phrases like, oh, they'll live to regret this. I mean, does, do people say that? Uh, that or, oh, well, I'll show them. And my favorite, personal favorite, because I actually use this, is, oh, it's okay, I'll just give them the rope. They'll hang themselves. Like, I mean, do you, I mean, sorry, I need Jesus a lot. Uh, <laughs> but, but we do that, right? Like, we actively curse other people. So you can see why this was so distressing to me all week. As I've churned over it again and again, the things that have come to the surface are, is that we can do this to each other that David's resentment is the result of someone else hurting him. It reminds us that when we hurt somebody, we open the door to resentment in them, which impacts everything. It impacts our relationships with people. It certainly impacts our relationship with God. When we think of a person who hates or is resentful, that's a reaction to something. Lewis says, Take from a person their freedom or goods, and you may have taken his innocence, almost his humanity as well. Ugh, so rough. Yet we understand the reaction of David to his injury. It makes sense. It's totally understandable, and it's also wrong. Love your neighbor as yourself is what Leviticus calls us to. Rejoice not when our enemy falls, and don't be glad when he stumbles, Proverbs 24, 17. Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread. In this little half sentence, we're reminded of David's humanity, that he's more than a two-dimensional character, this Bible guy, and scripture includes these places where humanity is seen, and yet it behooves us to not just gloss over and be like, well, humans will be humans, but rather to remember the whole biblical narrative that we're not supposed to be that kind of human. We're not supposed to treat our enemies uh, that way, but rather we're clearly, repeatedly called to not ever objectify or stop looking for the humanity, for the image of God in anyone, even if they're despising you, and even if they seem unimportant to you. We're invited to note the wickedness and to do something about it. Forgiveness is oftentimes what we're supposed to do about it, and I know I just was complaining about triteness, but it really is what we're invited to do over and over and over again, to mention it, to mention wickedness, to get involved if necessary. When we see mistreatment, even mistreatment of enemies, we're at a point in the road where it branches. One way is this way to sanctification, love, and humility, and the other is to spiritual pride, zeal, and self-righteousness, because we know it's wrong. 
And to do nothing requires some juggling and reconfiguring, reconfiguration of our faith in order to be okay with it being wrong. This isn't at all supposed to be a guilt trip at all, at all, uh, or heaping on shame on us, but rather, how do we move forward in this? What are the things that we do protest about? Uh, what are the things where we give a voice to people who need a voice? Do we go to Costa Rica or Rwanda because that's the voice God is calling us to give? Witnessing mistreatment of others is always a divine calling because we know what we should do. Lewis ends his thought on the subject by saying, if the divine call doesn't make us better, it will make us very much worse. Of all the bad people, religious bad people are the worst. Of all created beings, the wickedness is the, the, is the one who originally stood in the presence of God. Whoa, so rough, cuts you to the core. So we who, like David, are justifiably angry at things, we have some resentment, but who are we wishing ill on? What do we do with those things? Are we wishing ill on people? Before we move to the oil, which is a lot lighter of a topic, just wanted to take a brief sec, check in with yourself, sit with this. It's a pretty big pill to swallow, to, to say I actually do curse people uh, who I don't like, who sometimes are just inconvenient to me. So really taking a, a beat and go, man, today we have an opportunity to do things a little bit different. Uh, do we want to take that opportunity? Which fork of the road do we want to take? So the table, God's provision of sustenance and community in the midst of our fear. And then the provision of the oil is this healing, preparation, blessing, and anointing. Oil throughout the Old and New Testament is used either as this healing balm in preparation or in preparation for something sacred. So in terms of healing, James 5.14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church, pray over them, and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. In terms of preparation, whether it's the anointing of the sacrifices that were made on the altar, so prepping the altar with oil or prepping the sacrifice itself with oil, or Jesus being anointed in Matthew 26 to prepare him for burial, there's a purification and a preparation uh, that is symbolized in the oil. What's notable about the oil in this verse is the description of it is in the present. So you anoint my head with oil. You have anointed my head with oil. It's not going to happen. It's happened. It's going to keep happening. In the midst of our fears and uncertainties, David is reminding us that we have been and will continue to be healed of our past as we're prepared for our future. Symbolically, oil is often repre a representative of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the ever-present guide. One of the really cool things that we get to do as the pastoral staff is anoint either people or places with oil. And sometimes there'll be people who have a space, whether that's a workspace or a home space, that's evil has been done. And it's just a weight on them. And so being able to go and pray over this space and symbolically, but actually putting oil over uh, doors and, and over spaces or people who uh, have had different life choices and are now in a, a new space and feel like they need uh, to be anointed, to be healed of, of what uh, they've been and to, to just kind of get a renewed sense, and it's such a privilege. Uh, and in some ways, it's amazing and unbelievable, and in other ways, it's canola oil, right? Like, it's not fancy pants. Phil has fancy pants oil, but the rest of us, 
It's symbolic. Uh, and I think that's something that we can do for each other. Uh, we can do in our own spaces to invite the Holy Spirit into these places to be our guide, to be our comforter, to, to prepare our space for the future as we heal from the past. So the table is this place of community of peace and rest. The oil is this reminder that we're changing, healing from the past as we move into the future. And then finally, the provision of the cup. So the cup is that that is overflowing. So much like the oil here, again, the cup that's overflowing is happening already. It's overflowing already. The picture of God's great abundance to this point of utter saturation. That in our fear, oftentimes we tend to grip things real tight because what will happen if I lose this or this is the smallest thing that I have to hold on to, so I must hold on to it tightly. But here, there's plenty. There's enough for us, and there's so much so that there's enough for all of those around us. God's provision pours over the edges to those around us. David tells of three tangible provisions that change the way we understand and deal with fear. We come to the table that the Lord has set to deal with our fears in community. We accept the oil and the healing of the past with the confidence that God is going ahead of us, and it's a future that's guided by the Holy Spirit. And we get to spill out God's abundance, both in our own lives and to the lives of those around us. This one verse of Psalm 23, which we don't need to talk about, uh, is, is inviting us to surrender our fears and exchange them for the trusting love and kindness of God and God's work. Not by pretending that there isn't any fear or by playing that fake it till you make it game, but rather by trusting that God is profoundly present with us. He understands our fears. He's the best counselor ever, hearing our feelings and patiently talking through them with us. Or he's the best parent ever who doesn't shame us for being afraid, but rather sits with us and reminds us that we're safe and that we can be cheered on in spite of our fears. God's trusting. We could trust God that nothing that happens to us will be wasted. There's no plot point in our story that God won't use. So the pain that I, that I fear, which we do, is the result of brokenness, will never get the final word in defining who we really are. Of course, that doesn't make the pain less painful uh, or the fear less scary, but holding on to these feelings with an open hand, surrendering them to God. We get to see this one verse, verse 5, lived out in, in Matthew 26. Jesus is anointed at Bethany, which we talked about already, in preparation for the cross. And then he sits at the table with his disciples and shares the cup and the bread with them. He knows what's, what awaits him. And we know that he's fearful and that more than his fear and more than his pain, he trusts his father and he surrenders to him. So what's the fear that we're holding on to? That the Holy Spirit is inviting us to trade for God's abundant provision and we can use the example of Jesus as our encouragement that it's worth it, that God is trustworthy and we can trade these fears for his abundance. Join me as I close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much for the awareness of our fear, that we don't have to hide behind it, that we don't have to metaphorically crawl in the closet with it, but we can name it. Uh, we can name it in community. Lord, we can be quick to trade it for your community, for your abundance. Lord, please help us to see ourselves as blessed in an ongoing manner, uh, that we can be this source of blessing to others, that we can receive this blessing from you. 
Lord God, I also pray that you would bring to mind those places where we are actively cursing people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be more like you in that way. I pray that you would help us to live the call that you have given us and that we would speak up for the places where we see wrongdoing, that we would be active and that requires bravery and your spirit as well. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see those places and then walk in boldness towards you. Your name, amen.